Welcome to another episode of the BU Podcast, where light banter meets deep topics of the heart and soul. I'm your host, Chris Sirock. Welcome, my friends. It's my great pleasure to introduce today's guest to you. Emily Threat has learned to face life with love, optimism, and joy, despite, or because of, experiencing the loss of many loved ones. She's an author, teacher, and incredible human being, and is the host of the Grief and Happiness podcast. Her book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief, is a must-read for anyone dealing with human loss. She facilitates weekly meetings of the Grief and Happiness Alliance, publishes a weekly newsletter and blog, and her new book, The Grief and Happiness Handbook, is coming out soon. Welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you today. Yes. So your story sounds incredible. Many meaningful, but also very difficult experiences. Can you share with us some of the challenges you encountered and how you turned it all around? Well, well, I've had a long and very, very interesting life doing lots of different things. And in the process, I was married to two wonderful men, to Jacques Thoreau for 22 years, and I was with Ron Threat for 10 years. And both of them died. Ironically, both of them died from the same thing. Both of them were sick for the last two years of their life, and I just stopped everything else I was doing for those years to be with them, to live in the moment, to take care of anything that we needed to take care of and leave nothing unsaid. And it, it was a, an amazing experience both times. As, as many similarities as they had, there were that many or more differences. And after Jacques died, I had no intention of ever getting married again because I, I felt I, I did that. <laughs> you know, we, we did it well. We had a great time. And I couldn't imagine being with anybody else. Just couldn't imagine. And I, it's the first time in my life I'd lived by myself. And I was okay with that, which kind of surprised me. But then I met Ron. And I'm so glad I did because we had a wonderful relationship and I did get married again and it was just great. But then when he transitioned, <laughs> I said, okay, really, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do because it seems like getting married again is not such a good idea because <laughs> it didn't feel like my track record was too good with that. Uh, so I thought, what could I do? I, I needed to find my purpose at that point, something that <clears throat> I had known at different stages in my life, throughout my life, what my purpose was at that moment. But this was different than any place I'd ever been before. And so I really had to spend some time with considering that, with meditating, with just being, you know, just kind of thinking. And I started writing a lot. Now, I am a writer. I've written six books so far, or published five of the other ones coming out. And I, I like to write, and I've taught writing at the university level for many years. And I know the value of writing, and I thought, I'm, I'm realizing as I'm just writing here for myself, I wasn't writing to share with anybody, what I was discovering by the kinds of things that I was writing. And I thought, wow, I could teach other people how to write this way, or how to do these 
writing exercises or techniques that could really help them deal with their grief. And so I did. I started a, a group that started out with people coming to my home in Maui, Hawaii. Um, and then with the pandemic, a transition to being on Zoom. And my book came out, which was an amazing experience for me to create. And then I was saying, okay, now what can I do? <laughs> you know, how, how do I take this to the next level? What else can I do to serve other people as well as serve me? And I realized that what was happening in, in the equation, even though I was talking, my book title was Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. And that's that's what I believed. But I felt there was something missing. And I realized that that was happiness. Because so many people who I see dealing with grief or writing about grief, it's all pretty sad. And grief groups that, that I had been exposed to were lots of tears and it's nice to have people to commiserate with, but I didn't want to stay there. I wanted to broaden my life experience so that I could feel nourished and nourishing for other people. I wanted to love and be loved unconditionally. And I just don't mean romantic love. I mean love in general in life. And I saw that happiness was the key to that. And I had... Um, read the book Happy for No Reason by Marcy Shimoff after Jacques died, and it had helped me, and I had kind of forgotten about it in the, the process in the meantime. And then after Ron died, it came up for me again when I got this thing online saying that she had uh, training for to be a facilitator of uh, Happy for No Reason, a Happy for No Reason certified trainer. So I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm just going to see where that takes me. And when I did it, I thought, oh, this was the missing link. This is what I have to do. And from that came my podcast, the Grief and Happiness podcast, came the Grief and Happiness Alliance, which is a group that meets um, every week on Zoom. And it's at no charge to the people who come where we will write about grief. We'll share with each other what we discovered in our writing, and then we'll learn a happiness practice every week. And when I wanted to do that, I wasn't sure what people were going to say, because at that point, whenever I'd say something about grief and happiness, people would go, isn't that an oxymoron? <laughs> Those two words don't fit together. <laughs> and I said, yeah, they do. And yeah, they're supposed to. And and that's my my purpose now is to let people see that it's absolutely okay to grieve and it's absolutely okay to be happy when you're grieving. But I didn't want to make people pay for it. So I'd gotten a group of my friends together to show them what I wanted to do with this idea of the Grief and Happiness Alliance and taught them uh, like a pilot course so that they, they could see what it would be like. And they loved it. One of them even said in our last meeting, one of the last things anybody said was, this is an idea whose time has come. And I took that to heart. And I said, my problem is I don't want people to have to pay for happiness pay for getting comfort and support in their grief. And they said, well, we'll start a nonprofit organization and we'll support you in that by paying the expenses so people don't have to pay, but there is value to it because somebody else is paying for them to be able to come so that they can get the comfort and support that they need. So that's kind of where I am today. And I've got my new book coming out too that uh, is being published with the Grief and Happiness nonprofit organization. And it's 
the grief and happiness handbook. Wow. That's just incredible. What a journey. And I can relate to that deeply because also my book came out of my own journaling and my own inner work. And, and so it points to how these things that initially we feel like they're happening to us and, and that we're kind of a victim of them. And then making that shift to they are happening for us is really a turning point in terms of how we approach life, how we approach situations as they happen and turn those things into positives, not being in resistance and, and wanting it to be different, learning to come out of that resistance. It's a challenge for a lot of people. It almost seems like listening to your journey that it was pretty easy for you to start embracing all these situations that are deeply challenging for many people. I remember my dad getting his promotion or watching my friends that were experiencing similar situations feeling really challenged by these things and having a hard time coming out of them and and seeing them as 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 deepening experiences. Do you have any advice on how were you able to to see the light in those experiences? One of the things that happened for me was that I had to get out of my own way. And I think a lot of people get into that situation where we focus on that victim mentality. We think, what do I do? Uh, not not listening to the signs that are coming to you that say, well, try this or try this. And what happened with me finally after Jacques died, he died in February. And when New Year's came, I was still sitting by myself in the evening and not doing a whole lot, not watching TV, not even reading that much. I just couldn't figure out how to do anything or how to go anyplace. And I said, okay, I've got to start taking care of me. And I decided I'm going to, instead of making like lots of New Year's resolutions, like I had tried in the past that lasted for a week or two, I decided to do something different this time. And I said, I'm going to have one intention for me for the year. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to say, I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to figure out what that one thing I'm going to focus on is. And what came to me surprised me, and that was to accept invitations. And I thought, I'm not getting any invitations. Why am I thinking this? You know, where did that even come from? But the more I sat with it, the more I realized that that's what I needed to do. And what I saw actually was me saying yes, instead of my knee jerk of uh, not now, or I'm not ready, or I can't do that, or the things that easily pop into, especially the minds of people who are grieving. And I said, okay, this is so strong. I've got to say yes to it, and I'm going to accept invitations. And as soon as I made that commitment, they started to come. And my life opened up in amazing ways that I never would have thought of on my own. Because things would come to me and I'd say, okay, I said I was going to say yes, so I'm going to do this. And I did things I never would have thought of doing for myself. I never would have come up with these things in each one of them. And they were all different directions. I met new people. I created new relationships. I did more service. I found things that were really positive. I saw beautiful things that I wouldn't have been exposed to any other way. And I said, yeah, this is what I had to do. And what that did for me is open me back up to life, to not just existing, but really choosing to live my life in in a positive way. And I discovered that the more I was able to serve other people, 
the better that felt and the better I felt. Mm, that's so beautiful. Is it possible, I don't know if you can take us back to that moment, it almost feels like the insights that you describe of things coming to you are more along the lines of law of attraction where you create the, the intention and then the things show up as opposed to those things are showing up randomly, like we were kind of conditioned to believe and then we need to make a decision or something. It really feels like from your description that your inner wisdom arose and the key part being is that you listen to it. So I don't know if you can take us back to those moments where just like a thought comes to you and you take it to heart and you listen to that voice. And that is, I find such a challenge for so many people is that voice is there for everyone, but we tend to just drown it out or avoid it even. And it sounds like you were open to receiving that wisdom, but it do you recall exactly how these things, when they arise, what was your process of accepting them? Yeah, I'll give you a couple of examples of the things that the invitations that I accepted. So it'll give you an idea of the, the breadth and the unusualness of what these things were, things that I had not considered for something that's part of my life. The first big one that came to me was I lived in a very large county that had one big newspaper that served the whole county. And I had written an editorial response for them once that they requested that they really liked. And I had been very active in the community. So I was kind of a known face in the community. And they had an editorial board that would serve for a year, and it was time for them to get the new people in. They contacted me and asked me to be on the editorial board. <laughs> I'd never really been involved in journalism in any way. I was a writer, but not journalism. And it was an amazing experience because people would come to the board to pitch things that they wanted the newspaper to support and put in there. And I met some pretty significant people coming and pitching things to me. And we would listen to the pitch and then talk about them and decide what was appropriate and what wasn't. And that was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And got to do it for a whole year. And I felt really, it was a special thing, a special relationship with the other people on the board and with the newspaper. Then another thing that happened was I had been invited to go to an event with a friend and the friend was also taking a couple. So the four of us were in the car and I knew my friend and she knew everybody in the car, but I only knew my friend. I didn't know the other people. And it turned out the wife and the couple was on the ethics committee at the regional medical center. Now, Jacques was a philosophy professor. His specialty was bioethics, which is medical ethics. And he would teach the class for all the nurses in the college where he taught. All of them had to take, and it ended up being like the only class he taught because they had so many nurses and they all had to take it on facing living and dying. And so he was on the ethics committee for that hospital. And when he died, I, of course, wouldn't have been able to take his position because I wasn't a bioethicist. But they had community members on there. And the woman that was in the car with me was the person who was in charge of getting members for that committee. And she said, you would be perfect to be a community member on this committee. And I said, yes. And another amazing experience. We were making life and death decisions for people that didn't have anybody to make decisions for them. And they had to take it 
before a group to have everybody say that this is the way it should be before they'd make those decisions. And that was a really big deal. Yeah. That's an incredible so, story again. Yeah. Wow. And what strikes me is that, you know, again, when, when these opportunities arose for you, you said yes. Was that another moment of having to listen to wh whether this resonates or not? Were you just saying yes to everything or was even there an opportunity to go with what feels right, but there was maybe a voice that was hesitating, a head voice or some lack of confidence or something that was in resistance? Well, I actually recognized that I wasn't resisting, which was different for me because I have done so much stuff in my life that I, for a long time, had a real knee-jerk reaction of no to everything because I was doing enough. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to open any doors, didn't want to think about anything else. And so it was a real change for me to be able to listen to the invitation when it came and say, I recognize this is inspiration and I need to pay attention. That's beautiful. And is there something you could point to inside of you that shifted from the place where you were more blocked off and saying no without even considering, and then suddenly being in this frame of mind where you see that this is an angel <laughs> opportunity and you have to say yes, whether you have doubts about it or not, but that there's something about this that is meant to be, and you sense that, and, and that's why you said yes. Well, in that first year after Jacques died, as I said, I spent a lot of time by myself, and I was observing. I wasn't really participating in life, but I was observing. And I was seeing women that I knew that were about my age, that there wasn't a core of happiness or joy with these people. They were nice and they would say they were happy, but it just was kind of, everything was kind of neutral. And then I had another experience where I had a dear friend. He was the one person that kept coming to see Jacques in his later times of the couple of years that he was sick. At the beginning, when he first got sick, there were tons of people there, you know, flowers and people sitting with him at the hospital and bringing food to the house and all that sort of stuff. And the longer he was sick, the more those people faded away. Just they felt like they'd done their condolences, so to speak, and then they went on with their lives. But this one person, this one guy who I'd done quite a bit of work with professionally, he and Jacques just got along really well. And he he was... I think it was about 50. And it turned out that he had cancer and he had known that he'd had it for a while, but he couldn't get doctors to pay any attention to him. And it was a very, very frustrating situation for him. And finally, somebody said that, yeah, you actually have cancer and we need to treat it. And, but with the insurance that he had, he had to go to Los Angeles for the treatment, which was a couple hours away from where we lived. And so they put him in a uh, like hotel sort of thing they had across from the cancer center so that he could stay there while he was getting the treatment, but he was by himself. And when he was there waiting for his cancer treatment, he hemorrhaged and died in the room by himself. And it broke my heart. That was just so sad because he shouldn't have had to have been by himself. People should have listened to him when he was telling him his symptoms and that he needed help and he couldn't get it from any place. And I thought, I don't want to be that person that's sitting here in my house by myself. And I realized that that's what I was doing. 
was sitting in my house by myself just because I didn't have the energy, the motivation, the willpower, whatever it was that it took to make things any different. But with, with his death, I thought I owe it to myself. I owe it to my grown children who are out on their own. I owe it to the world to be the best person I can be. And I'm not my best right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's that's uh, that's when I realized I, I want to be a better person. And one thing I've got to tell you is that going through all this and that whole journey to happiness and being a happiness trainer, all that sort of thing, I'm happier now than I ever have been, including when I was with my two wonderful husbands, because I finally opened up and recognized how beautiful the world is, how beautiful my life is how I can focus on the good of the world and contributing to things becoming better and being good instead of sitting around feeling sorry for myself and saying no. Wow. Yes. Oh my goodness. Whew. I had shudders going all over me <laughs> from that story. And it really signifies how, uh, first of all, congratulations and Thank you. Re- really moving, you know, through all of that and coming out, on the other end, what's so important, I think, about what you described there is that it's not just about overcoming the grief. It's not just not feeling like a victim any longer. But when you turn the corner, that there's this whole new world, a whole new life on the other side that is really the place from which we should be living and are intended to live from. So that happiness component, right, really moving into that. Things don't just happen to us, they happen for us. So you've taken all these things and with some reflection, as you paint this picture of your life's journey, it it all really does feel like it happened exactly the way it needed to. Those were the experiences that had to happen. And even other people's suffering, it had a purpose for your life, right? So we can never know, we can never just judge things away and write them off as somebody else's experience. They don't affect me and I just need to focus on my little world, but we're all connected Often it's strangers that somehow flip the switch in us that their journey makes us turn our life around or a little missing piece comes into the light. So that's a really beautiful journey. One of the things that stood out was when you started saying yes to all these new opportunities, if you were to put yourself into the other people's shoes and reflect on why they were extending these offers to you, why they were asking you to be on the boards or or participate in their organizations, why they were saying yes to you? That's a really interesting question. And I think part of it was a, a public perception of who I was and who I was with shock because we were involved in the community. We did a lot of things. We were very involved in theater. I taught at the university, he taught at the college. So we were, you know, these academic kind of people, but we also did theater because both of us had had a background in theater and Jacques loved to sing and act. And he, he hadn't done that since college a long, long time ago. And then had gone into the military after that. And there was no drama. <laughs> well, there was drama, but not in theater. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, so he, he just got away from it completely until we got together. And it opened such a door for him. And people were so surprised because everybody thought of him as this philosophy professor. And he was a, a tremendous actor. 
and beautiful singer, just, just beautiful. And I was very active in the community. I was on lots of boards for different things. I taught with the American Association of University Women. I was the president of a very large chapter of that. And so I was visible. I was visible. You know, people could see me. And most of these people that were asking me to do things weren't people that I knew, but they knew my reputation or they knew me by my public visibility and asked me based on that. And I, I heard that, you know, they asked around. They didn't just say, oh, she might be good. You know? <laughs> but they made conscious decisions to in- extend the invitation to me. And I'm sure that that's where it came from. And I know that they were delighted afterwards. As a matter of fact, the editorial board editor uh, at that newspaper, she'd been there for years. And I think she really liked what I was doing. And after my book came out, she called me and she said that she had been asked to write an article about somebody who had made a real difference in their life and a difference in that community. But even though I hadn't lived there for years, she remembered me. And she wrote this beautiful several page article with colored pictures and everything's in it. And I didn't know her at all before she invited me to be on her board. And this was years later after I had done that, that she remembered me and still wanted to have, even though I didn't live in the community anymore, wanted them to be aware of what I was doing. Yes, that's amazing. It really goes to show how when we apply ourselves through our passions, and even if we're known for one thing, that we still have other passions, and all of that spills into our reputation and the consistency of people hearing about us and knowing about us. So if there's anything to take out of that, it's follow your bliss, as Joseph Campbell used to say, and good things come from that. And then I would like to add to that, It's uh, there's one aspect to this where people, they see your accomplishments, your public persona and reputation, but there's still something that happens when they meet you and you're feeling the other person's energy for, for the first time that I think is a contributing factor to them continuing that engagement. So how do you think life has shaped you? What presence do you bring to every situation? I think a lot of it is the positivity that I carry and the happiness. I learned to smile. I didn't used to smile a whole lot. I really didn't. I was a very serious person. As a matter of fact, when I got together with Ron, he kept, every time we'd walk by a mirror, he'd go, look at yourself. (laughs) Are you smiling? And of course, that would crack me up. And so I'd smile then. But it, it started breaking that ice of realizing that I wasn't looking at the joy in life. I was looking at getting everything done that I knew that I needed to do. And that was serious to me. So that that was different. Oh, oh and another really good example I wanted to share. Um, when my book, A Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief, came out, I talked to the publisher and said, what would you think about having a grief panel? Because they had several grief books in their list of books that they published. And so they went to Unity Church in Missouri. It's a beautiful place that is their headquarters and they have a retreat center there. And so they they contacted them and said, would you like to have a grief retreat and we can provide the program? And they said, yes. And we did it, it was phenomenally successful. We had 2000 people or something sign up. It was a really good experience. And a few months after that, the person who was the moderator 
contacted me and he said, I've got something I want to talk to you about. And I said, okay. And he said that Unity had come to him and said when they wanted to open the village again, when the pandemic was allowing people to gather again, the first thing they wanted to do was have a grief retreat. And they asked me, he said, I will facilitate it, but only if Emily will co-facilitate it with me. And the contact we'd had up until that point was doing that one thing. And so he he contacted me and said, I'm hoping you're willing. <laughs> and I said, sure, that'd be great. And we've become really good friends and have created several things since then. We do a dialogues on death and dying panel on Zoom once a month. I do a three-day workshop four times a year to teach journaling. And it's just a blast. And we have just a beautiful relationship. And that was just because he liked my energy, because I was so positive, you know, because I was upbeat, because I had support and comfort and love to offer to these people that came to this retreat, uh, virtual though it was, they they really felt that they were getting something out of it. Mm. And he connected to that energy that he felt with me when I did it. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. And yeah, it's it's all about energy and you can even sense that through the online calls and it's really what we put out there in in no matter where we are, it's energy that we're contributing. So making sure that that energy is at our highest vibrating place that is our contribution to all these situations. That's really beautiful. There's one more thing that stood out when you mentioned relationships and this is going back from earlier when you described after your first marriage, you felt like been there, done that. And even from your description, it felt like you were at peace and didn't really feel like you needed that again. But then life happens. So I'm curious because it happens to people. We go through an experience and then we kind of are closed off to it and feel like we don't need that again. What happened there? If you can go back to that point that somehow you were opened up again to receiving that experience. That's kind of an interesting story. <laughs> I had gone back to teaching at the university. I'd been away for a while because I had decided I wanted to do a different direction. And I opened a live theater, a 99-seat Equity Waiver Theater and School of Arts and espresso bar that turned into a cafe and catering company and art gallery. And, <laughs> and so I was doing all this when Jacques got really sick. And I ended up, I had also created a nonprofit foundation that went along with that, that could make sure that anybody who wanted to come to the classes could come without having to pay, because it's one of those things for me. And when I did all that, when Jacques got to the point where I, I really couldn't be away from him, there were too many things I needed to do for him. I went to that organization, the nonprofit, and said, if I give this to you, will you accept it and keep it going? And they did. And so I had the freedom to stay with Jacques and do what we needed to do for those two years. And when the two years was over, I said, whoops, <laughs> you know, I quit my university job to go do this. And then I gave that away. And so now what do I do? <laughs> and one of the people who had come to Jacques service, which was phenomenal, was one of my colleagues from the university. And she called me and she goes, we really want you to come back. So I went back to the university and I'm still teaching there right now, actually, even though I retired a while back, I'm still teaching for him long distance, obviously. Anyway, when I went back, we were having faculty meetings before the, the term started. And one of my friends who I hadn't been visiting with for a long time, because we were just kind of separated by what we were doing, said, so you're dating? <laughs> I said, uh, no. 
And so she said, well, you need to be dating. I said, uh, no. And I said, uh, you're single. Are you dating? <laughs> and she said, we're talking about you now. <laughs> so every time I ran into her, she kept saying, so you need to go on match.com. I said, I'm not going on match.com. I don't want everybody knowing my business, you know? So finally she said it enough times that I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to try. So I, I checked it out to see what it was. And I realized that I needed to write a list of everything that I would insist on having in somebody, if I was even going to date them. And it was a big, long list. And I wrote my profile based on what, who I was and what I expected. And so I, I I'll give a commitment to one evening to check this stuff out. So everybody was so far from my list. I couldn't believe it until Ron showed up. And I was reading his profile. And as I read it, I was checking off every single item on my big long list, every single one of them. And so that was a Thursday night by Sunday night. We went out on our first date and we were together ever since. And a couple interesting things happened from that. I ran into my friend at work and she said, so did you go on match.com? And I said, yes. And I found the one. And she said, you what? <laughs> so I took her into my office and showed her a picture and she got this really funny look on the face. And I thought, oh, I hope I haven't been played. I hope this isn't somebody that he'd been with or something. And she said, he's my minister. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that kind of blows away. Well, I told him that that had happened and he was trying to recall who that was. And it turns out she didn't go to church real often, but he was the minister of the church that she was involved in. And so a few weeks after we got together and he goes, we need to go see her and go visit her and say, thank you. And I said, well, okay. So I called her and she said, sure, come on over. And so we went over and we had a very, it was just casual, you know, drop in thing. We we're having a conversation, but the two of them kept looking at each other in this kind of quizzical way. And I thought something's going on here, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I shouldn't have rushed into this, you know, all these judgment things of myself. It turned out that they were both at UCLA together and the same activist group many years before they hadn't seen each other since it wasn't like they were dating or anything. It was that they were both participating in this group. And then a couple of weeks after that, I had this feeling that I had met Ron someplace before. And I, I couldn't figure out where it could possibly be. And it finally dawned on me that uh, one of my friends had asked me to go to see Sister Helen Prejean, who wrote Dead Man Walking, who was doing a lecture at the university. And I thought, well, that, that would be interesting. So we went. And when we got there, she says, I hope you don't mind. But a friend of mine asked me if she could sit with us. She said, she's showing this new guy in town around. And I said, okay. So they came in and I saw this guy and we all stood up and I shook his hand and it was like electricity went between us and the look in our eyes. And I thought, this girl is a lucky woman. And that was, that was my thought. I didn't even remember his name or anything, but it turns out that that was him. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and perhaps that electricity was towards you. Yes. And, and he, he said that because he hadn't remembered it either. And when I said, do you remember sister Helen Prejean? And he looked at me, he goes, that was you. <laughs> that did happen because <laughs> we both were thinking uh, this was just, wow. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's um wow. 
the threads that run through our lives, right? And sometimes we even have these touch points earlier on and we weren't quite ready yet to receive, but the situations will come back some other way if they're meant to be. And so those incredible stories within stories that make up the mosaic of our life and weaving their way through our time here. So that's a beautiful share. I could go on forever and ever. I want to thank you so deeply for being on here and sharing you know, these are personal stories often, but that is what life is all about. These quote unquote ordinary experiences start to highlight how extraordinary each and every one of our lives really is. Thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. This was fun. <laughs> and thanks to the listeners for tuning in. As always, you can check out my website, sirak.com. That's C-I-R-A-K.com for the latest news and updates to download some freebies or sign up for my events. See you again next time. Until then, be happy, be free, be you.